Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Okay, welcome to Intelligent Talk. The website is intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have Mr. Daniel Gordis with us to discuss his book, Israel, A Concise History. Mr. Gordis is a distinguished, distinguished fellow at Shalom College, the first liberal arts college in Israel. That's based in Jerusalem. He's also in, uh, writes for the Jerusalem Post and for Bloomberg. Um, and his book was named, he's named one of the 50 most important Jewish people by the Jerusalem Post. And his book won the National Jewish Book Award. Was that right, Mr. Gordis, on that introduction? Was that correct? That was all correct, yep. Okay, great. And your website is org. Okay, great. So thank you so much for coming on. I enjoyed your book. The purpose, Mr. Gordon, what I wanted to do is just do a brief history of Israel and just clarify sort of the, the relationship to the Jewish people to that region, how they acquired the territory, some of the peace offers and where things are now. And so I just wanted to start sort of at the beginning, and I'll just rehash some of what you wrote, which I learned from your book. Um, 1000 BC, King David unites the Jewish people of Israel. Correct. Is that basically right? Okay, then the first temple is built by Solomon, who I guess was his son around that time. The Syrians then invade, um, and then the Babylonians, Babylonians in the uh, what 586 BC basically um, take the Jewish tribes away. Cyrus the Great of Persia comes, and he then frees the Jews. They come back. Uh, the second temple is started. Uh, then the Romans scatter um, in 70 AD approximately. That's just a rough uh, summary. So the Jews have a relationship to that land going back something like 3,000 years. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, that is exactly right. Okay. And then... Um, I mean, it actually goes, it obviously goes, you know, it goes back longer, goes back even longer than the um, than the period that you mentioned, but David uniting Jerusalem, uniting the people in Jerusalem, because obviously long before David, there was, at least according to the biblical account, you know, there's Abraham, there's the whole, there's the whole dream of this land becoming a homeland long before even King David. But in terms of history that we have actual evidence of, uh, you're, you're exactly right. It starts around David's time. Do we know when Abraham lived? I mean, it's just that it's not really known exactly where he, where he lived. Is, it, is there a time period? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's approximately 2000 BCE. I mean, uh, you know, the, the dates are very hard to compute, but people say it's approximately 2000 BCE. Okay, great. And then I just, uh, as your book relates, and as I learned from your book, Theodore Herzl basically has a dream to return Jews to Israel in the 19th century. They have the first Jewish Congress, uh, what, 1893 in Basel, Switzerland? Uh, 1897, and it's the first Zionist Congress. First Zionist Congress. So how many Jews were living in that region uh, prior to that? Do you, have, do you have any guess of what the Jewish population was in that region prior to that? There was a few, it was a few tens of thousands. I mean, very, very, very minimal. They were all, of, literally all of them, of Sephardic background, meaning they were from the Levant. There was no kind of European element there. Uh, there was a small, poor, very religious, devout, pious community living almost exclusively off of foreign Jewish contributions, mostly from Europe, to keep them going. Uh, but there wasn't really any any of the kind of Jewish life that we take for granted taking place in Israel now did not exist then. If it hadn't been for Herzl, do you think there would have been this movement organically? I mean, how important was he in the movement to return Jews to that well, region? Well, he was exceedingly important. He was exceedingly important, and yet it should be said, I mean, I'll come back to say why I think he was really very critical, but we should know that the idea of moving to Palestine 
uh, as in, in response to what was going on in Europe, uh, was not. He was not the first one to say that. Uh, a man named Pinsker, Leo Pinsker, had, had said that before. Moses Hess had said it before. Uh, now the Jewish people, when those people wrote a little, a couple of decades before Herzl, uh, really weren't so ready to hear it. One of the reasons that Herzl's book did so well, his book called The Jewish State, which he published in 1896, uh, was that Europe was really already. It was becoming more and more apparent. Uh, that Europe was not going to remain a very hospitable place for the Jews to live. Now, obviously, nobody then had any idea what was going to happen in the middle of the 20th century. It was going to become much less hospitable, to put it mildly, uh, than anybody in their wildest nightmares imagined. Uh, but by the time Herzl was writing towards the very, very end of the 19th century, there's already a sense uh, that something in Europe is becoming very ominous. Uh, so, yes, Herzl's critical. His book called The Jewish State, which I just mentioned, really launches the Zionist movement. But uh, he worked feverishly, and he wrote that book in 1896, and by 1904 he's dead. Uh, so there's really just a period of eight years in which this single man uh, writes the book, uh, then in response to some of his friends who think that the book has attracted so much attention that he should actually have a conference, launches the first Zionist Congress. The Zionist Congress is uh, every year for a long time. Um, they were, then they were interrupted by wars and so forth. But uh, fundamentally, he does launch it. I mean, he has called to this very day kind of the uh, prophetic voice who launched the state. His, his memory and his picture, uh, you know, hanging lots of places in Israel for good reason. This country is really his idea. And the Jews are being discriminated against, like in, for example, in Russia. They, was, they were confined to the, the Pale District of Russia, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, there's a place called the Pale of Settlement. Uh, where they were mostly confined to. But it's important to note, by the way, that Herzl's, Herzl's program got a tremendous amount of traction even in Western Europe, places like France, Germany, and so forth. Because even there, what was considered to be earlier an enlightenment and a kind of a rise of secularism in Western Europe and a sense of emancipation of people of all different sorts, the emancipation was not working out for Jews the way that people had thought that it would. In fact, some of the early Zionist leaders were people who had become, you know, they'd been either socialist or communist or whatever they've been before, uh, but they began to realize in the middle and late 19th century that the promise of equality for Jews in Europe was not being was not being fulfilled, whether it was in France because of the Dreyfus trial and many other events surrounding that, or whether it was in Germany where Jews were increasingly excluded from the professions and so on and so forth. So we have one kind of uh, discrimination against the Jews in Eastern Europe where there's you're correct, but they, they have to live in a, an area called the Pale of Settlement and, and so on and so forth. But even in Western Europe, where the Jew was theoretically at least much more liberated, much more emancipated, uh, Jews recognized that Europe was not living up to its promise. So it's, it's, it's across the continent. Right. You talk about I think, the Dreyfus case. It was a military man charged in France that was considered anti-Semitic. You have quotes from Kaiser Wilhelm, very anti-Semitic quotes. You also have quotes from General Patton, which shocked me, too, as someone who liked Patton. I was surprised that he made those comments. But anyway, if we just go down to, um, to World War I, the, the Ottoman Empire controls this region. There's obviously um, a major conflict between the uh, great powers. The British um, launched what's called the Belfort, a white paper called the Belfort uh, Declaration. Could you please explain what that was? Right, the Balfour Declaration is in, is in 1917, and uh, Lord Alfred Balfour, who had previously been Prime Minister, but was at this point Foreign Minister, um, has uh, been um, growing increasingly sympathetic to this idea that the Jews should have a state of their own. And in 1917, he issues this very, very brief letter, which he uh, gives to Chaim Weizmann, who was leader of the Zionist, the Zionist movement in England at that point, and it basically said that His Majesty's government looks with favor 
on the creation in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. There's another sentence there, but that's the first, that's the first and most important sentence. In other words, it's only 1917, is only 20 years uh, after Herzl launches the Zionist movement in 1897. 20 years, we all know, is not a tremendous amount of time for an international movement to gain a lot of traction. Right. Uh, but the Zionist movement had done exceedingly well in those 20 years, and you go from a Congress in Basel in 1897 of just under 200 delegates, as far as we know. We don't have an exact number, but I'm just under 200 delegates to the world's most powerful empire, which is the British Empire, standing in 1917, that it now endorses the idea of the creation in what was then Palestine of a state that would be a home for the Jewish people. So Balfour is exceedingly important. And what was interesting, Mr. Gordon, watching this comes from one of your videos now from, from your site, but you talked about how uh, part of that was taken away by Churchill in the 20s, which I didn't realize, and just made into Transjordan. That was originally supposed to go to the Jews under that Balfour Declaration. Is that right? Well, that's what most people assume. The truth is that the Balfour Declaration was issued without maps. Okay. So we don't know exactly what Lord Balfour was intending, but the British mandate uh, included what is today Israel, the West Bank, and the country of Jordan. Zionists assumed that when Lord Balfour said that we're going to create in Palestine a national home for the Jewish people, that he was simply meant he was going to take what was called British Mandatory Palestine, uh, which was, by the way, the British didn't even, by the way, have Palestine yet when they issued the Declaration. They, they, actually, they actually acquired Palestine a few weeks later. It was obvious that they were going to because the war was going in their direction. Um, but so then the Zionists assumed that at the point that the British were talking about creating a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, they meant the area that the British controlled in Palestine, which, as we said, is Israel today, the West Bank, and Jordan. Uh, and then Winston Churchill, for a whole array of reasons, which we probably shouldn't go into now because it's very detailed, uh, decided to lop off what was then called Transjordan uh, and created a separate country, which today is Jordan. He was trying very hard to protect British interests in the region. British had interests in salt. British had interests in oil. Um, you know, Britain had a lot of different things to consider in that region. Uh, so, yeah, he lops it off. And then, of course, um, subsequently, much later, 30 years after that, in 1947, when the United Nations votes on a proposal to partition Palestine into two countries, one Jewish and one Arab, um, the, the Jewish side is going to get even less than that, but, you know, we're, we're jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit. Right, Mr. Gordon, I just want to say, well, I don't want to get into that, you're right, too much about Jordan, but they were given, the, the Hashemite were given that, King Hussein, as a reward for supporting the British. They controlled Mecca and Medina, didn't they, in Saudi Arabia? And that was sort of given as a reward for that in World War One. I. I don't remember who controlled Mecca and Medina at that time. You're probably right, but I don't recall. Okay, and then, then you also you talk about the Peel Commission in the 30s, which also further divides the land between Israel and Arabs, just sort of a sort of a division or another division, correct? Correct. Well, Peel is actually very important. It's 1937. Appeal's very important because it's actually the first time that anybody formally recommends partitioning the land. In other words, there had always been an assumption on the part of both parties, the Jews and the Arabs, that they were all going to get all of it. One side was going to get all of it. Between the time that the British issued the Balfour Declaration in 1917 and the time that Peel comes along in the late 1930s, a tremendous amount has changed. There are massive riots on the part of Arabs in 1929, um, and the Jewish community of Hebron, which had existed for hundreds of years, uh, was massacred over the course of a single weekend, actually, and the Jewish community of Hebron was really destroyed and was not rebuilt until after 1967, when Israel recaptured that area in the Six-Day War. Uh, so there's a massive outpouring of violent hatred against Jews in 1929, and there's major Arab riots uh, again several times, but in 1935 and 1936, there's major Arab riots and so on and so 
forth. And the British recognize that their situation is simply a tinderbox and something is going to have to give. And they send an appeal over to Palestine to begin to examine what could be done. Now, what he suggests seems commonplace to us today because it's what the United Nations did in 1947, and it's what virtually every peace plan uh, that Israel has uh, preferred has suggested, which is in some way, shape, manner, or form to divide the land up. But back in 1938, the idea of dividing the land was a radically new idea. Uh, everybody was unhappy. The Arabs were unhappy because they weren't getting all of it, but the Jews were also not happy because they weren't getting all of it. But what started then was actually a very important pattern which would repeat itself. It would repeat itself in 1947 with the UN. It would repeat itself again in 1967. It would repeat itself again in 2000 with Bill Clinton, which was that as unhappy as the Jews were with what Peel was offering them, they said yes. Uh, they didn't love it, but they said okay. Uh, the Arabs did not love it and responded with another outburst of violence. Um, so Peel is important, I think, for an, uh, uh, many, many reasons. But one of them is, of course, this very, very important first stage of suggesting that the land be divided, which is still the basic idea of two states. Uh, and number two, the unfortunate response of uh, the Arab side in the conflict, which was violence uh, in the face of the fact that they were not getting what they had hoped to get. Okay, so Mr. Goodnight, I just want to take us, as you said, to the founding of the state of Israel. Obviously, World War II occurs, the Holocaust happens, six million Jews are killed, there's a lot of sympathy for the Jews, but the British are trying to restrict immigration into that area while they control it. The British leave, the UN uh, divides the territory, the Israelis, the Jews, once again, accept a partial division of the country. The surrounding Arab states invade Israel, they declare independence in 48. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is, is the Al-Talina. Could you describe what that was and why that's important as far as, like, having a state, this right to the idea of a state having monopoly on violence and what really Arafat did not do with Hamas and things like that? Sure. So the Alpalina takes place in uh, in 1948. Alpalina is actually an Italian word, which means seesaw. Um, but it, and it was named that because Jabotinsky, Jeff Jabotinsky, who was one of the important Zionist uh, thinkers of uh, the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, he actually used Altalena as his pen name in Italian newspapers, so it was kind of named for him. The Altalena was actually purchased by American, by Jews in America, and then it went to Europe with a boat. And it went to Europe, and it was loaded up with some passengers, but mostly with arms. Uh, and it was it was purchased and and funded and and loaded up by uh, by one of the underground military groups that the Jews had, had during the British Mandatory period called the Irgun. Now, there were basically three military groups uh, in that, during that time in, in Palestine. There was the Haganah, which was the main, the main military force that had been developed already in the early parts of the 20th century to first defend uh, Jewish sites and then eventually to preempt any Arab attacks. And that becomes the backbone of the Israel Defense Forces once the country is founded. There's another underground group, um, which is run by Menachem Begin, who will eventually become Israel's prime minister, but at this point he's an underground figure. Uh, that's called the Irgun. And there's an even more radical group called the Lechi, which was run back then by uh, Yitzhak Shamir, who also became eventually Israel's prime minister. Now, what Ben-Gurion, who's Israel's first prime minister, does in 1948 is he understands that for a country to function and to be a general, a genuine democracy that functions under the rule of law, uh, there can't be competing military organizations, uh, which of course is not what's been the case in, in either the West Bank or in Gaza. So if you've been following the news, even in recent weeks, you've seen that in Gaza, uh, the Islamic Jihad can launch missiles at Israel, and then Hamas has to sort of say, well, it wasn't us, and so on and so forth. But 
they've allowed this kind of multiplicity of, of weaponized groups to continue. But Ben Gurion understood that no no genuine state worth its name can work that way, uh, and he insisted that all of the paramilitary groups, the underground groups, be wrapped up into the IDF, which the Haganah had become. Everybody basically agreed. This, this boat, the Altalena, was purchased by the people in America without Menachem Begin's even knowing it. And when it approached Israeli territorial waters was the first time that the Israelis began to understand this boat was on its way. And the, this was during the War of Independence. And Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister, had decided that Israel was not going to be able to hold on to Jerusalem, that as much as he wanted it, uh, it was simply not winnable at that stage. But Begin had some of his soldiers in the Irgun, still fighting in Jerusalem because since it was not part of Israel, it was not it did not fall under the area that the agreement that everybody would wrap their groups together in, so forth. So he wanted to use those arms uh, to help his soldiers survive in Jerusalem, which again was not officially part of Israel at that point. We won't go into all the details now. Very complicated negotiations, very intense negotiations, a tremendous amount of distrust uh, between Ben Gurion and Begin, but eventually. Uh, Ben-Gurion, when he feels that Begin is not going to give up the arms to him, uh, orders that the ship be sunk. And the ship is fired on, and the ship, since it's loaded with arms, of course, explodes. A few people are killed. It was right near It was right near the beach, so most people were able to jump off and make it to the shore. But a few people were killed. Uh, and then, actually, fighting broke out on the shore between people loyal to Ben-Gurion and people loyal to Begin. Uh, and one of Begin's great moments, he had an extraordinary life, but one of his great moments, and it was a moment that he himself said he was perhaps the most proud of, of all of the many things that he accomplished, perhaps the most proud of, he ordered his men not to shoot. Uh, he said, you know, even though they're shooting at us, we dare not fight back. We cannot afford a civil war. Don't forget, Israel had been formed in May 1948. This is now July 1948. The country is barely two months old. And Begin understood that if that battle in Tel Aviv Beach got out of hand, the entire country could literally have gone under. So it's a it's a very small, brief, you know, hour or two long, very tiny civil war. Uh, it gets shut down by Menachem Begin. And it's really, again, I think there are two takeaways from this. Number one was Ben-Gurion's understanding that for a state to be able to be a genuine state, all of the military power had to be under the control of one organization, i.e. the army, and that the army had to report to the civilian democratic process, which Israel, of course, has always had. Uh, and the other was that I think great, great minds like Begin understood that even if he had been wronged, uh, there was a greater, there was a greater good involved with the survival of the state. And really, his greatness came out that day when he ordered his men not to shoot back and to simply allow the battle to die down. You, you wrote a biography of Begin, didn't you? I believe. I did. Yeah. And he also, he was also sort of infamous for having a hand in uh, part of the structure of the King David when that was under British control. But you write about that in the book too. I, I want to get to this. this that's earlier. That's earlier. I want to get to the 67 war because that's obviously why Israel has these territories. Before that, I just want to quickly summarize what happened in 56. Um, France, Israel, and England um, moved on the Suez Canal. Um, the Straits of Tehran were also being blocked, and that was affecting Elat, southern Israel. Um, and at that time, they, Israel was forced to pull back. They gave back the Sinai, which they had taken. And also, that, that sort of pushed Israel and France together. And it was France that helped to give Israel their nuclear technology, I believe, the Demona, because of that interaction. And France also pledged that the Straits would be open from there on in, which, of course, was violated in 67. Is that a fair little quick summary? Right, yeah, that's a very good summary. Of course, in 67, when um, when France uh, was, was shown evidence that 
You know, Israel wanted France to back them in 1967, and France refused to allow Israel to go to war. Uh, and Israel said, but you promised if the Straits were closed, then this, you know, we would have a right to go to war to protect our interests. And France said, yeah, well, that was then, this is now. Uh, it's just a different time. But yes, your summary is 100% correct. Okay, thanks. So now I want to get to the, 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 the Six-Day War, six seven, because that is the reason why Israel has these, these territories that are so controversial today. And what I didn't realize until I read your book is that Israel, they, they pre-attacked Egypt because Egypt was, was blockading those straits, and also they were making very bellicose sounds about attacking Israel. What I didn't realize is that they waited so long, I guess under Prime Minister Levi Eshkol, there was almost, there was fears of a coup in Israel because they was like, well, we're letting this danger grow, this cancer, and we really have to attack it. But Israel really waited quite a bit before attacking, didn't they? Yeah, they waited a long time. I'm not sure that I would say that there was fear of a coup. I'm not aware that anybody was talking about taking over the government, but there was a sense that Eshkol did not have the nerves of steel that were necessary. I mean, it was much more than Egypt was sounding bellicose and, uh, you know, closing the straits of Tehran. Egypt was clearly getting ready to attack Israel. I mean, nobody in the world denies that. I mean, even Egypt today would not deny that that was the plan that Nasser had. Uh, it was clear from all the movements. It was clear from aerial photographs. I mean, there was no question whatsoever that with troop movements, tank movements, and armaments and so forth, uh, that, Israel, that Egypt was getting ready to attack. That, there's no question about that. The problem was that the Americans and others, but especially the Americans, had told Israel, you dare not attack first. You're not going to have our support if you're the ones who spark the war. Uh, but at a certain point, Israel simply decided, after a tremendous amount of infighting among generals and among the politicians and so on and so forth, and trying to get Eshkol uh, to get up the nerves to authorize the attack, at the end of the day, Israel recognized that if they waited to be hit, it was going to be a brutal war. And what they needed to do was to take the Egyptian Air Force by surprise. Uh, those, those were the days in which the Egyptian Air Force, actually, as crazy as it sounds, uh, they all literally had breakfast at the same time, and Israel knew that. So all the planes were out on the runways, all of the, you know, everything was abandoned. There was no way to get anything up in the air. And Israel literally took basically every single plane that it had in its air force uh, and sent it down on the attack to Egypt, leaving the rest of the country horribly unprotected for a few long hours. Uh, but by doing that, it was able to destroy virtually the entire Egyptian air force on the ground before anybody got a plane up. And the war was really over. I mean, we call it the Six-Day War, but it's, it's kind of, you know, a, a several-hour war. And then there was some brutal fighting. I mean, 600 soldiers would eventually die on Israel's side and many, many thousands on the Arab side. Uh, but in those six days that followed, as you say, uh, Israel would take uh, the Sinai Desert from Egypt, because Egypt continued to attack, and it sent ground troops in and whatever planes it had left it tried to use. Uh, Jordan foolishly entered the fray several days later and therefore lost the West Bank and the east city of Jer the old city of Jerusalem. And Syria, which was part of the initial attack, uh, lost the Golan Heights uh, to Israel. So Israel basically in six days tripled its size, uh, lost 600 men, in the, in, which is obviously a tremendous amount of people, but it's not nearly as disastrous as it could have been because, as you correctly pointed out, it took this audacious step of attacking first. Okay, and yes, and then um, it's funny because they asked King Hussein to stay out, but he attacked anyway. As you said, he lost the West Bank. Then the, the PLO and Arafat is kind of, they're pushed out. They go into Jordan, and they try to overthrow Jordan. And in 1970, King Hussein has to push them out. They go to Lebanon, which causes tremendous problems, and they go to Tunisia. So it has ramifications for several different countries and obviously for the PLO. But Israel now controls these territories, and that's because they were attacked and they, they seized it. They eventually gave back the Sinai under Camp David, right, which is the second time they gave it back, I believe. 
Okay. Now right. I just. In other words, the Camp David Accords. I mean, they gave it back. Um, they gave it back as part of a peace deal with Egypt. They, they gave it back the first time. They didn't get anything out of it. They, they captured it in '56, and the Americans said uh, that you know they had to give it back. Israel didn't get anything for it, right. except for some bland, uh, prob, you know, promises of support down the road. But but '77, when Begin uh, is elected, and then the negotiations to follow into '78, and so on and so forth, this is an unbelievably dramatic turnaround in the Middle East. Uh, because, uh, as you pointed out, you know Israel now negotiates with Egypt, gets a peace treaty with Egypt, gets back to Sinai as, as the, the beginning of what we would have hoped would be a, a process of, of making peace with all of its neighbors. It then eventually gave, uh, signed a peace treaty with Jordan, and in 2000, when Ehud Barak was elected, uh, or 1999, I guess it was, right? When 1999, when Ehud Barak is elected, uh, he had also promised to make peace with uh, the Palestinians and with the Syrians. Of course, tragically, neither of those two things happened, and uh, you see what's happened in Syria, obviously. Um, and, of course, the, the conflict with the Palestinians continues. Yes, and I just want to quickly get to the last major conflict, which is basically 73, the Yom Kippur War. Israel is attacked by Egypt and Syria. My question to you is, why do you think Egypt and Syria attacked Israel, knowing that Israel had nuclear weapons? And there was a book, Seymour Hersh wrote a book called The Samson Option, that said Israel was fairly close to using nuclear weapons. And Golda Meir said, we have a secret, we have no place else to go, which obviously they, they fought tenaciously and they pushed them back. But why would they attack Israel knowing they had nuclear weapons? Do you have any idea why they would do that? Yeah, it worked. I mean, they attacked them for exactly the reasons they wanted. Uh, Angra Sadat understood that he had a hit. His, he did not need to capture, he did not need to destroy Israel. Now, everybody thinks about Israel and what Egypt and Syria were trying to do in 73 was destroy Israel. They knew they couldn't do that. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, Israel had nuclear weapons. Israel was not going to, Israel was not going to go down. Uh, but Israel could be very, very badly battered. Uh, without using nuclear weapons, because nuclear weapons is obviously a horrendous last resort, which may not save you. It just means you're not going down alone. <laughs> right. um, but, uh, but but what, 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 uh, what Saddam understood was, he was a very smart guy in his own way, uh, and he understood that he just simply needed to batter Israel hard enough that it might actually be open up the cracks of Israelis being willing to uh, think anew. There were apparently, uh, we don't know this for sure, but it, it appears fairly likely that there were some overtures, some of them mediated, some of them direct by I Egypt to Israel trying to negotiate post-73, uh, sorry, post-67, uh, for Israel to make some accommodation to Egypt and, and return the Sinai Desert, return the Sinai Peninsula. But Israel was in no mood to negotiate. There was no, there was, no, there was a sense of invincibility and invulnerability on the part of Israelis, a foolish sense, but there was that sense. And they had a sense, you know, we can hold on to this as long as we want. Um, we're going to we'll negotiate with you at our own time, at our own pleasure, and you can't come begging to us now, having attacked us. But, of course, what, what, what 73 did, even though Israel was able to get back to the same borders from which it started, to fight, despite its initial losses, uh, in that war, Israel lost 3,000 men, or 2,700 men. Um, it was a devastating war for Israel. And it left Israel shocked and shattered, some would argue, to this very day, uh, and it, and that, that that worked for Sadat. What it basically got Israel to do was when he announced in front of the Egyptian parliament in 1977 that he was willing to negotiate with Israel, um, Israelis weren't quite so quick to turn him down. And in fact, Menachem Begin immediately invited him to come to Jerusalem, which he did. Uh, and then, of course, as you pointed out, Camp David begins, and over the course of time, the deal was worked out with Carter, trying to mediate, not terribly successfully, and uh, Israel returns to Sinai and gets a peace uh, with Egypt. It's important to point out, I think, that uh, while many Israelis were dubious about this peace with Egypt, and while the Egyptian street to this very day 
uh, is not exactly overwhelmed by a love for Israel, uh, the peace is held. And in fact, when the latest uh, when the latest flare up came between Israel and Gaza just a few weeks ago, it was ironically Egypt who uh, helped to negotiate the the quiet. And in 2014, when there was a very serious war between Israel and, and uh, Gaza, or Israel and Hamas, uh, Egypt was actually helping to keep Hamas in place. I mean, Egypt, Egypt was effectively uh, on Israel's side in the war. So it turns out to have been a piece that has stuck through thin and thick and thin. Uh, not necessarily the Arab street has changed its view so much, but in terms of diplomatic and military cooperation, it's been a very successful arrangement. Okay, I, I want to get to the, the 2000 uh peace off with Israel. Maybe before that, I just want to say, you mentioned in your book, the 1975 UN resolution that says Zionism is racism. You basically say that's basically a metaphor for the anti-Semitism that exists in the world that has always existed uh, against Israel. I mean, would you say that's a, this is tremendous hostility against Israel just for the sake of its existence? Would you say that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think Nikki Haley has been unbelievably successful in pointing that out in her role at the UN these days. Right. Okay. Um, in the 80s, just to get to the 80s, I mean, Israel does invade Lebanon to push out the PLO, and that was, some consider that controversial. They eventually withdrew. Get, getting to um, 2000, which I think is important, there, there is a, um, an offer by Israel, which you talk about in the book, and I, I've read as much as I could about it, and some people have different interpretations of the offer, but essentially, as I understand it, it was over 90% of the West Bank to Arafat, a connection between West Bank and Gaza, um, some sort of civil control of part of East Jerusalem, and basically, they turned that down. Is, is that a fair summary of, of what the offer was? Well, it's, it's one of the views. You know, we really don't know. The public doesn't really know 100% what it was that Israel offered. What we do know from people like Ambassador Dennis Ross, who wrote a book called The Missing Peace, uh, what we do know is that Israel made a magnanimous offer of some sort. Was it everything that he, it should have offered? Was it everything that Arafat wanted? Obviously not. Uh, but, but Israel made some major offer which would have moved towards Palestinian statehood in the West Bank. What the relationship, what the nature of the connection between Gaza and, Israel, and the West Bank would have been is not clear. People talked about a bridge, people talked about a tunnel, um, but not clear what, what was offered there. But it made a magnanimous offer. And unfortunately, what 2000, the, the, the offer that, that Barak made to Arafat at Camp David once again, um, was the importance of that offer was fundamentally that it called Arafat's bluff. This was a time when Arafat really could have seized the opportunity for Palestinian statehood. Uh, but instead, in September 2000, a few months after these negotiations collapsed, he unleashed what became called the Second Intifada, which lasted from 2000 to 2004, and was a period of tremendous blood loss uh, on both bloodshedding on both sides. Uh, but yeah, but 2000 is very important because Israel made a profound offer, which would have allowed the Palestinians to have a state, uh, and they didn't take it. And I think that that's part of what's been really forgotten as people talk about the, uh, the Middle East these days. And again, uh, 2000 is almost 20 years ago, so it's important to remember, for example, that today's college students, uh, whether they're in the States or anywhere else, have no recollection of this. And if they're not students of history, they don't really remember that Israel made this magnanimous offer. They talk about Israel as an occupying power. And they talk about ending the occupation, which most Israelis, including myself, would like to be able to do. Uh, but they don't talk about the fact that Israel has made that offer and others, uh, and that the Palestinians turned them down. So Arafat turned down that offer in 2000. After Arafat dies, Israel's Prime Minister, Ehud Olmert, uh, makes some sort of offer to Abbas. And Abbas doesn't even come to the negotiating table to talk about it. 
Um, so yeah, 2000 is, is, is important for exactly the reasons that you mentioned. You know, I think when you read your book, you get a sense that David Ben-Gurion was a practicalist person, was a practical person, and he would have accepted that offer probably, given the fact that, you know, in war, territories change, and Israel does have, is not going to be dislodged except through a peace negotiation. So he probably, if, if you could put Ben-Gurion in Arafat's position, it's likely he would have accepted the offer. Would that, would you agree with that? In fact, he did accept that offer. He accepted the offer of the U.N. vote in 1947, which was right. much less territory than he thought Israel deserved. But he said yes. Um, and ironically, you know, the, the great irony of the war in 1947 through January 49 is that if the Arabs had not attacked Israel, the likelihood is that there would be no Jewish state today. Because the Arab state that the U.N. created was overwhelmingly Arab. Uh, the Jewish state that the, the, Arabs created, that the, the U.N. created had a pretty sizable Arab minority in it. So demographically, it's not at all clear that the Jewish state would have remained Jewish, while it's 100% clear that the Arab state would have remained Arab. So you, had they not attacked and that Israel not changed the borders, uh, it's very possible that if they just said yes, we're not happy, but we'll say yes, who knows? You know, history is obviously exceedingly unpredictable, but things might have played out very differently for them uh, and for the, the Jews and then, of course, the Israelis. But yes, absolutely. Had what, we, what we see is the difference between the statesmanship of somebody like Ben-Gurion and the lack of statesmanship on the part of somebody like Arafat. Uh, the same thing, by the way, is true of Menachem Begin, who ran the Irgun, and Yitzhak Shamir, who ran the Lechi. These were Israelis who had been in their day underground fighters. You know, they, they, they headed a, a military organization. But they eventually became the prime ministers of a democratic state and functioned completely within the rule of law. That was a transformation that Arafat was never able to make. Uh, and that's to a certain extent, by the way, a transformation that even Mahmoud Abbas, who was not a terrorist, uh, but Mahmoud Abbas has also never been able to make. He's never been able to simply change the direction and say, we're now going to abandon our our vitriolic, uh, you know, sort of verbiage from back in the day and talk about destroying Israel. We're now going to actually make a deal. He's obviously worried that he makes any compromise. Uh, he's not going to live to see it come to be because he'll get killed, which I think is a legitimate worry on his part. Right. But you're 100% right that if they had a David Ben-Gurion there, their world would be very different. You also mentioned, I think, a book that he had written um, that I wasn't aware of that was a very anti-Semitic screed. Do you remember that? It was in your book about that that, um, that he had written. I forget the name of it, but it was a, it was an anti-Semitic book. I, I don't remember the name of it that Abbas had written. Abbas? Uh, Mahmoud Abbas? Yeah, or some, or maybe it was a um, a paper that he wrote, uh, or a thesis or something. It was, his, it was his doctoral dissertation. He has a he has a PhD in history. Yes, uh, right. and it was his doctoral dissertation, basically denying certain parts of the Holocaust. Right, right. Okay, and then just in 2003, then um, Sharon, I didn't, was it 2002 or 2003 when Israel withdraws from uh, Gaza? Do you remember what year that was? 2005. 2005. Okay, Sharon is now prime minister. Um, he unilaterally withdraws from Gaza. And essentially what happens is Hamas takes over and they become the, a sort of a quasi-terrorist state which then lobs missiles into Israel. Is that fair to say? Which is exactly what it is. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, what did Israel expect when they withdrew from Gaza? What do you think they were hoping, were hoping was going to happen? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the great question. I mean, the, the, what we were hoping, obviously, is that the Palestinians who now had their own territory in Gaza would have voted to create a democratic government that would sign a deal with Israel. And that was obviously the hope. That might have been pie-in-the-sky hope, but that was the hope. The question that we really don't know the answer to is what Sharon, who was a great military strategist, uh, what he had in mind that he would have done uh, had he known which way Gaza was going to go. I mean, as soon as, as soon as Israel gets back Gaza, of course, as you said, Hamas takes it over. 
through quasi-democratic means. Uh, but Hamas takes it over and then turns it into a terrorist state, and they've launched obviously thousands and thousands and thousands of rockets against Israel. The question that nobody knows the answer to is if Sharon had not been felled by the stroke uh, that ultimately killed him, uh, what would he have done? Had he foreseen that possibility? And if he had foreseen that possibility, what did he plan to do? That we don't know. I read also somewhere that he was planning to do the same thing in the West Bank. He was going to withdraw from there unilaterally as well. He was thinking about it, but obviously um, there was no way to there's no way to know what would have happened because he did not live to make it happen. I heard Netanyahu recently say that actually it was a it was an advantage that Israel was not given oil because they had to use their mines and create a high tech industry, etc. I think Israel has a second. You mentioned in the book the second highest number of Nasdaq listings. Um, in, in the United States? After right? the United States, right. Yeah, after the United States, it's got the most companies listed on the NASDAQ. Right, and, and, and um, rule of law, free press, etc. Um, so by all accounts, a thriving democracy and a high per capita income and, and pretty strong economic growth, too, from, from essentially who yep, was founded by uh, Eastern European socialists, but it's sort of more than this capitalist country. It's changed a lot since then, yes. Right. Okay, well, Mr. Gordis, um, thank you so much for this quick summary. I just wanted to give people a, a basic, brief view of the history, and I appreciate you going through. We went through it very quickly, but I think we, we touched on most of the major points, and um, I very much appreciate it. Well, you did a great job of summarizing it, so thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. I urge people to look at your book and obviously go to your website, and to get more information, they can uh, hear more about it and learn more than we could have gotten in here. But thank you so much for your time, and have a good, good day. Oh, you as well. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. You.